Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast and refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information prior to listening to this podcast. Greetings. I'm Mark Matthews, Head of Research Asia for Bank Julius Baer. I'm joined today by our head of Hong Kong research and China strategist, Richard Tang. Hello, Richard. How are you? I'm very well, Mark. Thank you. And you? I'm very well, too. Thank you. Today, we're going to be talking about investing in China. Richard, two years ago, if I said, now's a good time to invest in China, do you think most people would have agreed with me? Well, Mark, two years ago was December 2018. When I think back to that time, the mood was pretty somber. But one thing, all through that year, the United States had been escalating the trade war with China, one tariff after another. And there were threats of much bigger ones to come. But also, the Chinese market had delivered poor returns relative to peers for a number of years leading up to then. In fact, from the beginning of 2010 to the end of 2018, The CSI 300 index, which is comprised of the largest 300 companies in Shanghai and Shenzhen stock exchanges, had returned just 2% per year in dollars, including dividends of just 2% per year. That was much lower than the 13% of S&P 500, even though the stock 600 in Europe, despite all those problems, had delivered a better return at 5%. Yes, Richard, I remember those times well, too. And I think you're right that most people wouldn't have agreed that now is a good time to invest in China, which is too bad because uh, here we are two years later, and the CSI 300 index has returned 75% in dollars, including dividends since then. That's much better than the S&P's 46% over the same period, or Europe's 30%. Why do you think that is, Richard? Well, Mark, It's interesting you should choose the year 2018 because it so happens that was a very significant year for the Chinese stock market. Before then, all economy stocks were a bigger part of the market than new economy stocks. And just so listeners know, uh, when we say all economy, what we mean is the sectors of the economy that rely on traditional methods of doing business. So that includes financials, utilities, industrials, materials, and oil and gas. On the other hand, new economy sectors are technology, telecommunications, consumer and healthcare. Those are the ones that are embracing and taking benefits from technology. In 2010, for example, all economy stocks were 80% of the Chinese stock market and new economy stocks were only 20% of it. But through the years, slowly, things changed. And in 2018, the new economy stocks surpass the old ones. Today, they are 70% of the market, and all economy stocks are now 30%. The reason that's important is precisely because new economy companies embrace and benefit from technology, 
They've got returns on equity that are roughly twice as large as the old economy companies and earnings growth that's roughly twice as large as well. It's just like in the United States, the ability of new economy companies to scale into new businesses, including the businesses of old economy companies, is just not something that the old economy companies can do. What this means is the quality of China has improved. And what's most exciting is, even two years ago, you could have said all economy sectors like financials, utilities, industrials, materials, and oil and gas didn't rely much on technology and just use processes that have been around for dozens or even hundreds of years. But that's changing. It's going to happen in many places around the world. But in China, it's probably going to happen in an even bigger and faster way than other countries. Richard, I agree with you, but I want to say one thing about the old economy companies you mentioned, and that is they're mostly cyclical companies, meaning their fortunes and share prices swing depending on the upward or downward movement in the economy. And several data series tell us that China's economy is on an upward trajectory. For example, purchasing managers' indices tend to lead GDP growth everywhere in the world, and China's no exception. China's official purchasing managers index rose from 51.4 in October to a three-year high of 52.1 in November. And the new orders and new export orders subseries that tend to lead the purchasing managers index itself, they both reached three-year highs too. And the official service sector purchasing managers index rose from 56.2 in October to a nine-year high of 56.4 in November. So with that in mind, Stocks that benefit from the economy getting better, cyclical stocks should do well in coming months, and and the tourism ones should do well too. But let's go back to the new economy, Richard. Earlier you said you thought China's going to transition to new high-growth industries in an even bigger and faster way than other countries are going to do. I wonder if you could expand on that point. Certainly, Mark. Chinese government uses something called five-year plans to regulate and guide the economy and the market. And when I say regulate and guide, I mean to provide a framework for the economy to operate to help it reach certain goals. You may be familiar with the high-speed chain. It was a big part of the five-year plan in the 2000s and 2010s. And it almost certainly wouldn't have been built out as quickly or efficiently without them. And in October, the government announced a framework for the 14 five-year plan that will last from 2021 all the way through 2025. There are many areas the plan would cover, but the focus would be on three what I would call buckets in particular, which are technology, consumption, and the environment. And we think these three buckets are where you'll find structural opportunities to own for years, not weeks, not months. Let me walk through them one by one. First, on technology, in the next few years, the government will focus on reducing reliance on foreign technologies, especially in areas like semiconductors. It's also accelerating digitalization in all aspects of life, from e-commerce and digital currency to big data and artificial intelligence. We expect strong demand and favorable government policy foster rapid growth in many sectors that benefit from this. Most importantly, with digitalization, whether the economy is doing well or not, you will see technology just keeps advancing. 
The second bucket in the five-year plan is consumption. Consumption is being upgraded in China, and that's a direct consequence of people getting wealthier. Over the past few years, investors have witnessed the power of Chinese consumers, especially in luxury goods. But now, the buying power is broadening out. For example, this year in the Double Eleven Shopping Festival, an online shopping festival that's held on November 11th every year, this year extended to four days, consumers have spent more than half a trillion RMB, and that's more than Black Friday and Cyber Monday in the United States combined. Now, one of the government's objectives is to increase incomes in rural areas and lower tier cities, and unleash the purchasing power of those people. The beneficiaries of that will most likely be mass consumption and local brands as well, because China millennials and zillennials increasingly favor them over the foreign brands. The third bucket is the environment. A few months back, China committed to achieving carbon neutrality in China by 2060. This means that China will have to use less coal and more wind and solar energy. Being carbon neutral also means full electrification of cars. And last month, China pledged the sales of internal combustion engine vehicles would be phased out by 2035. In the past, the lack of charging piles was the major bottleneck for electric vehicle adoption. But the government will now accelerate the build-out of charging piles as part of its new infrastructure initiatives. So we expect rapid growth in the electric vehicle market. But Mark, the trade war hasn't gone away at all. In fact, it seems to have changed into something even worse. You're right, Richard. And we shouldn't pretend tensions between China and the United States aren't a potential risk. The market hopes a Biden presidency will be a marginal improvement over what Trump did. But Biden himself has said he's in no rush to take away the tariffs and his immediate priorities are on the COVID epidemic in the United States, economic stimulus at home improving relations with traditional allies. So he's probably not going to be lifting the investment ban that targets specific Chinese companies either. In fact, it's possible that restrictions on capital flows increase and make it even more difficult for investors to access the Chinese market. But if you're willing and able to invest in China, you should. Good things often come out of bad situations. There's an analogy our colleagues in Europe use in the year-ahead market outlook that I think is quite appropriate, and that's with the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, and that lasted from 1947 to 1991. One of the seminal moments in the Cold War was when the Soviet Union launched the world's first satellite, Sputnik in 1957. And it kicked off the so-called space race between the two countries. If it wasn't for Sputnik, President Kennedy wouldn't have pledged to send a man to the moon in 1962. And and the United States did send a man to the moon in 1969. And there were all kinds of other things that happened after that, too. Point I want to make is the space race was where many important advancements in technology started. It's where GPS systems were first developed and CAT scanners, wireless headsets, LED lighting, portable cordless vacuum cleaners, freeze-dried food, memory foam, scratch-resistant eyeglass lenses, laptop computers, anti-icing systems for aircraft, 
safety grooving on roads, smoke and carbon monoxide detectors, modern fighting equipment, all of those are spin-off technologies from NASA's space research and development that we use in everyday life. And maybe they would have been invented anyway, but they might not have been invented for a long time or in the same way. So back to the present, there is friction between the United States and China. The United States is making it difficult for China to advance in technology, but this could actually be a blessing in disguise for investors in China because it means China will have to move from innovation, in other words, copying things, to invention. And that might slow it down a little in the beginning, but we learn best and come out strongest when we have to do things ourselves. You know, Mark, you're right. And I can give four examples that I saw in the newspapers from last week alone that shows how far China has progressed when it comes to technology. In some cases, more than any country in the world. First, one of China's top technology companies announced it has rolled out a fleet of fully driverless robo-taxis on public roads in Shenzhen that have completely removed backup drivers or any remote operators. Second, Remember earlier we talked about how the government is focusing on reducing China's reliance on foreign technologies? Well, another one of China's top technology companies launched its first domestic chip manufacturing factory last week, which will help it achieve a complete semiconductor industrial chain from chip design, chip manufacturing, to packaging and testing. Then we move into the realm of almost science fiction, but it's not fiction, it's reality. Last week, China powered up its largest and most advanced nuclear fusion experimental research device that uses its more powerful magnetic field to fuse hot plasma and can reach temperature of over 150 million degrees Celsius, 10 times hotter than the core of the sun. Fusion is the holy grail of energy because it releases 4 million times more energy than burning of coal, oil, or gas, and four times as much as nuclear power, but it doesn't create radioactive waste, and it carries less risks of accidents than nuclear power does. And lastly, Chinese scientists announced they have built a quantum computer that's able to perform certain computations nearly a hundred trillion times faster than most advanced supercomputer. Richard, what you just said actually makes me think about the coronavirus because it reminds me of an article I read in last month's Atlantic magazine titled Eight Lessons from the Spanish Flu. It made the point that although a cure was never found for Spanish flu, descendants of it are the H1N1 influenza viruses that we're still fighting today. But in the course of trying to find a cure, scientists discovered penicillin. And that can cure all kinds of horrible diseases like pneumonia, strep throat, meningitis, syphilis, gonorrhea. And they discovered the transformative power of DNA, which opened up the field of molecular biology. So if we fast forward to the present, you might have heard that Pfizer and Moderna vaccines use a technology called messenger RNA. Without COVID, they wouldn't have figured out how to make it work. But it has massive potential because it can destroy this infectious virus. Scientists think it can also destroy many other diseases, even cancer. So I guess you're right that sometimes even something bad can have some good outcomes that wouldn't have happened without it. But getting back to China, I just realized all of the things we've talked about so far are thematic investment ideas that are all equity-related. 
and we should really give some airtime to fixed income. Sure, Mark. Well, the first thing we can say is what analysts have been saying for years now. With rates so low, looking for yield just gets harder and harder. We still have some yield out there, definitely. But there's no denying you have to take more risk to get it than you did it before. And between credit risk and duration risk, we'd rather go down the credit ratings a bit than farther out the yield curve. That's because we think the biggest risk in the bond market right now is rising inflation expectations. If those lead to higher yields at the long end, the price of long-dated bonds will fall much more than the short-dated ones. But of course, it also got some risk going down the credit ratings, and I'm sure many of our listeners know about the recent defaults in the onshore RMB bond market. We think this shows that the implicit guarantee from the government is diminishing, which frankly is a good thing because if you are going to have a bond market to match global peers, it has to be able to price risk efficiently. So that means picking the right credit has never been more important than it is in China today. Strategically, we think the best risk award is in triple B and double B rated names. More defaults also mean diversifying exposure is more critical than it was before. In other words, concentrated bets on a few credits could be very risky. Mark, there's something else we haven't talked about yet, and that's the currency. You're right, Richard. Well, in short, we're bullish on the renminbi for three reasons. The first is that China's got better economic growth than the United States or Europe. This year, we think China's economy grew by around 2%, and the U.S. economy shrunk by around 4.5%, and Germany's economy shrunk by about 6%. And in 2021, China's economy should grow by about 8%, the U.S. by 4%, Germany by 5%, and then in 2022, China should still grow by around 5%, the U.S. by 3 Germany by 25 Second reason we think the renminbi will rise is because Chinese government bonds are yielding a much higher yield than U.S. bonds. The spread of Chinese 10-year government bonds over U.S. 10-year government bonds is 2.3%, wider than most emerging markets that have significantly higher risk. So they attract capital into China, and that leads to a stronger currency. And the last reason is we think the dollar is going to continue to weaken against most currencies in 2021. So the renminbi will just naturally benefit from that trend. Mark, I think we've gone through quite a lot. And I hope that if there's one message investors can take away from our conversation, is that this isn't the market it was five to 10 years ago. You mentioned yourself that the quality of the companies that dominate the Chinese stock market has changed, and much for the better. But before we conclude, I want to say that the quantity of China has changed too. And when I say that, I mean both the economy and the market. This is an economy that 10 years ago was $6 trillion in size. And as we speak today, it's around $14.7 trillion in size. So take the consumer, for example. This year, China reproduced $5.1 trillion in retail sales in 2020 compared with $4.9 trillion in the United States. The U.S. would probably reclaim the number one position in 2021 and 2022 as it finally puts COVID behind it. But after that, China would move to the top position 
and is probably going to remain there for decades. Also, China's stock market has a valuation of $10.6 trillion now. Ten years ago, it was around $3.3 trillion. And I'm just talking about the stocks listed on the mainland. I'm not even including Hong Kong. And that's bigger than any other market in the world, except the United States at $41.6 trillion. But the next largest after China is Japan, and it's only $6.8 trillion. And that's why that's important is it means China is simply too big to be ignored anymore. For years, global fund managers were just weaving and out based on policy directives of the government. And if the government increased liquidity, they would buy it. And if it took liquidity away, they would just sell it. But few of them had a lot of China in the core strategic part of their portfolios, the part where we buy stocks and hold them for a long time. Now, they're increasingly putting in in their core portfolios, not only because the quality is better, but because to not own China is straying too far from the global benchmark. You know, Richard, I can't help but add one final point, and that is that China is not correlated to the rest of the world. That's mostly because foreigners still don't own much of it relative to its size. They only own about 3% of the mainland Chinese stock market compared to 34% of the Hong Kong market, 33% of the Korean market. In fact, the average emerging market is 25% owned by foreign investors. So if they all rush for the doors because of something the Federal Reserve said or some new crisis in Europe or whatever it is, it doesn't really matter in China. It doesn't move the market the same way it does the others. And here's another way of looking at it. Europe's stops Stock 600 Index has a coefficient of determination to the MSCI USA Index over the last 10 years of 0.79. That means if the S&P goes up one week, European stocks will almost always be up that week too. But the CSI 300 index's coefficient of determination to the American market over that same period is just 0.29%. That is not a meaningful relationship at all. Well, Richard, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Likewise, Mark, I hope our listeners have enjoyed too. We look forward to tuning in with you again soon. Goodbye. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.